We come today in our study of 1 Corinthians to the end of this magisterial chapter where Paul has been teaching on the resurrection. It also means that we are perilously close to the end of the book. If your Bible is set up like mine, you can begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel and the blank page on the other side. Uh, And uh, we will be going somewhere after 1 Corinthians, yet to be determined. Uh, But we do still have a few weeks with Paul here in his letter. Uh, Today, looking at the end of his teaching on the resurrection, uh, death being swallowed up in victory. We're going to be reading and studying today 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. You can find that on our cart Bibles on page 962, if you've not already. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, today reading verses 50 through the end of the chapter in verse 58. And before we go to God's Word and read it together, let us go again to His throne of grace in prayer. Please pray with me. O gracious Lord and living Father, Thank you again for the promises that we find in your word. We pray that you would meet us here as you've already met with us in worship and called us into your presence. So meet us with your truth. Use your word, living and active, to divide us between spirit and soul and joint and marrow. Lay us bare before you so that you would knit us together again by your spirit, by your comfort, by your son. Help us to see wondrous things of Christ our Savior, and to go away rejoicing because we have been with you and seen you in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, And the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. It was now eight and a half years ago when Sarah and I packed all of our belongings and left Pennsylvania to head for snowy New England. And at that time, I very gladly walked away from a good job, a job that was very stable, a job that provided well for our fledgling family, and a job that was very, very boring. 
many of you have heard that story. I worked in a factory. I ran a machine, and parts went in one side, and they came out the other side slightly smaller all day, every day. In many ways, that boring job was a real blessing. Uh, it was a wonderful, low-stress option to uh, pay the bills early in our marriage. It gave me time to let my mind wander for 10 hours a day to spend time praying and thinking and studying the catechism. And it was a blessing in many ways. But it was not the kind of job that came with any sense of a purpose, any kind of deep personal fulfillment. It's the kind of job that you got through by telling yourself, two more years and I'm out of here. Six more months and I'm done. And on that day when I clocked out for the last time, I was so excited to be leaving that boring job. But it always makes me feel a little ungrateful when I think of the man who trained me. His name was Ed, and by the time I came into that machine shop, he was on his way out. Ed was late into his 60s. He was preparing for retirement, and he had been in that same shop, running those same machines, processing those same parts for well over 40 years. Now, it used to be that that was common. Everybody put in 40 years at the same place. That was just how things worked. You had a family, you put down roots, you got established, you put in your time. That was it. But uh, in 2012, Forbes magazine reported that the average American job tenure, the length of the, the time that the average American stays at one job, is down now just to 4.4 years. By the way, if you are a millennial, that figure drops again by about half, 2.2 years. Now, that statistic makes Ed Strapay's 40 years in the same machine shop seem like a lifetime. Surely, at some point during, during those four decades, he had to have had other opportunities, other options. At some point, he had to have gotten curious, what would it be like just to do something else, somewhere else, just to see what it's like? But he never did. He stayed there and he retired there, right where he was, and he was steadfast. He was immovable. That's what the Lord wants us to be, brothers and sisters. Steadfast. Immovable. Not just in our jobs, even though that might be nice. But steadfast in the gospel. The Lord wants his people to have their hopes so fixed on the truth of Christ that we cannot be moved. We don't succumb to the temptations of thinking, well, maybe there are greener pastures somewhere else, and there's something better that I can try on just for a little bit. The Lord wants his people to be steadfast. You can think of other examples of steadfastness. Steadfastness is that soldier who wears the funny tall hat who stands outside of Buckingham Palace. They're there in the fog, and they're there in the rain, and they're there even though 50 tourists a day try to take selfies with them, and they don't move, and they're steadfast. Steadfastness is the sequoia, towering hundreds of feet above you with a base as wide as a city street. And they withstand the winds, and they withstand the rain, and they withstand the drought, and they continue to bud even after the wildfires have gone through. And they're immovable, and that's what God wants his people to be. This is Paul's final word on the resurrection. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, be unyielding in the hope 
of the resurrection. Which is why one last time, Paul reminds us that the resurrection is a hope that's worth standing on. That's the point of these verses, to show us a few more things, one more time. I know we've spent several weeks here in these passages, but to show us one more time that there are things that are true for believers only because the resurrection is true. To show us some of the glory of our salvation that we couldn't know in any other way than by believing and standing firm on the truth of the resurrection that we have in Jesus Christ. Today, true to form, I want to show you three things that we can only know because the resurrection is true. First, the resurrection is the only thing that overcomes the problem of God's kingdom. The resurrection is the only thing that overcomes the problem of God's kingdom. We see this beginning in verse 50 where Paul gives us in that first verse an impossible thing. An utter impossibility, he says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. That which is destined to pass away can have no claim on those things that will endure forever. It's simply the way that it works. There's a categorical difference like oil and water. And that which is imperishable will always self-separate from those things that pass away. Go this week to Market Basket. Buy two things. Get yourself a can of beans and get yourself a bunch of bananas. And bring them home and put them both in the pantry on the same shelf somewhere in the back that you can forget about them and come back a year from now and tell me which one of those looks more appetizing. It will always self-separate. What is perishable cannot inherit what is imperishable. It simply won't last long enough to have any claim on it. That's simply the way things work. But the problem gets deeper. The problem is not just that mortal flesh is unable to inherit God's eternal kingdom. The problem is that Scripture everywhere, especially in the New Testament, holds up the fact that the kingdom is what we ought to be striving to inherit. Here we are, mortals, all of us, who cannot inherit God's eternal kingdom, and yet Scripture speaks of the desirability of this kingdom. It speaks of the tragedy of being left out of this kingdom. And the gap is widened, and this problem grows. Jesus told us, unless we become like children, we will never enter the kingdom of God. He told Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 14, we find Paul and Barnabas going about in Antioch and the surrounding regions, and it says that they strengthened the souls of the disciples, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Something that mortal flesh can't inherit, but something that the Bible holds up as the greatest glory we could ever have to be a part and to take part in the kingdom of God, something that we ought to desire with all of our beings yet lies without our reach. It's also what the Lord desires for His people. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you this kingdom, but Paul says mortal flesh cannot receive this kingdom. We can experience some of it now in our mortal bodies. 
The kingdom has come in part. Christ has ushered in. It's inaugurated, but it's not yet, if you want to ask the theologians and the way that they speak of it. There's an already aspect of the kingdom that we experience and we enjoy. But there's a difference between experiencing the kingdom and inheriting the kingdom. It's the difference between standing by a fireplace and warming your hands and being able to stand in the flames without being consumed. It's simply not the sort of thing that we're equipped for with the bodies that we have. And you can feel the radiance coming off of it and forgiveness and joy and hope in affliction. But to really inherit this kingdom, it's not something that flesh and blood can do. Well, those of you that have been with us, the past month or so, you know that God has already given an answer to this problem, a solution to this quagmire that we find ourselves in. And the answer is uh, that He has sent a Savior, a Savior who took on flesh and blood, who died and who's been resurrected, a Savior who's overcome the power of our mortality, who has vanquished our perishability. It is by participating with Him in His resurrection by faith We receive a promise that our bodies will be made like His, ready and able to really inherit this eternal, imperishable kingdom. That's God's solution to this problem. But you know, not everyone's willing to accept that. There are some who are tempted not to be steadfast, not to be immovable. There are some who would rather inherit the kingdom on their own terms, and without all this bodily resurrection talk. But that option never really solves the problem of God's kingdom. In fact, it presents another problem. If we change the terms on which God wants us to inherit the kingdom, this imperishability and this eternal nature of His kingdom, if we change the terms, we will always shrink the kingdom to be smaller than something that God intends it to be. When we try to inherit the kingdom without the resurrection, we always make it something smaller and something less than God says the kingdom ought to be. There's the ever-popular approach of turning it into a metaphorical kingdom. And you can metaphorically experience and inherit this kingdom, right? That's what this is all about, Uh, to tap into the power of metaphor of resurrection, to live each day as a new gift inspired by the example of Jesus' love and charity and His self-sacrifice. And the kingdom isn't about heaven and hell and eternity and justice. It's about how this metaphor and this image in your mind, this myth of resurrection, can change your experience now and how it can give you a new interpretation on life. But it shrinks the kingdom. It's an attempt to have God's kingdom without believing in the reality of the king. The Lord who conquers real enemies, a God who gives real life and deals with real sin and real joy that lasts beyond the 80 years that these perishable bodies can give us. God's promise to His people isn't a metaphorical kingdom. It's not living with the reality of resurrection somewhere simmering in your subconscious to inform everything you do. His promise of kingdom is much larger than that, much more eternal than that. Another way that we try to shrink the kingdom is by thinking that it can be established in an earthly way, according to man's way of establishing a kingdom. You know, never underestimate the power of military might and good legislation and societal change, and and Christendom will take over and it will reign from shore to shore and from century to century. 
Some of those things are good, and good legislation and societal change. But if our hope, our ultimate hope, is in these things, in an earthly kingdom, we will always sell God's kingdom short. We will shrink it down into something that it was never intended to be. You see, because military might can't deal with the final enemy of death. And even widespread societal change can't produce the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And legislation can never eradicate sin in the human heart. God's promise of a kingdom to his people isn't an earthly kingdom. It's not a small approximation of the real thing. It's an imperishable kingdom and an eternal kingdom. That's why Jesus said that his kingdom is not of this world. God's promise is not a kingdom that we can build, but a kingdom that we receive. One that is imperishable and cannot be shaken. And to take part in that kingdom, we must have the resurrection. Verse 53. This perishable perishable body must put on the imperishable. That's how this problem is solved. This mortal body must put on the immortality, and that is what will happen. The day of the Lord, when the trumpet sounds as quickly as you can blink your eye, whether living or dead, all of God's people will be changed to be like Him. You see, the resurrection is something that we have to stand firm in. Something we have to continue immovable in, because it's only the resurrection that solves this problem of God's kingdom that promises us and gives us the reality of a promise of a kingdom that can never pass away. Not little things that are fleeting in your consciousness or my consciousness or the borders of the nations that we find ourselves in. We have to stand firm on the joy and the hope of the resurrection. Secondly, beginning in verse 53, the resurrection declares the fullness of Christ's victory. Apart from the bodily resurrection and the truth of Christ's resurrection and coming again, we don't actually understand the fullness of Christ's victory. In, uh, in verses 54 and 55, the little section in your text that looks like poetry, Paul is singing what the scholars call a taunt song. Now, you wouldn't call it a taunt song. If you were on a basketball court, you'd call it trash-talking. If you want to sell commentaries to seminary students, you have to call it something more important to make yourself look like you know what you're talking about. So it's a taunt song. But it's the same thing. It's ridicule. Paul imagines death as an enemy, defeated and shriveled and powerless, and he makes fun of it. Where's your sting, O death? I thought you were so tough. Aren't you the one that everyone fears? Aren't you the one that has the victory over every man and woman and child? And where is your strength and your victory and your sting? Come on, death. Where is it? Now, you know, if you've ever trash-talked on a basketball court, without the skills to back it up, that can be really embarrassing. To tell somebody you're going to pull some move, and I'm not a basketball guy, I don't know. And then to miss some simple shot like a layup and have them dunk right over your head. It's really embarrassing. And so if Paul doesn't have a reality behind what he's saying here, this is pretty embarrassing for Paul to taunt death and not be able to back it up. But he can back it up. There's reality here. There's a reality that Paul knows by faith. There is a day coming when death actually will be swallowed up completely and fully and finally. It's the last day that he told us about earlier in in verses 24 and 26. Then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Paul is taunting and ridiculing death from this prophetic vantage point. He is looking at what Christ has already declared will come to pass. And he says it will be this day when all of God's people will be able to rejoice and taunt death in just the same way. And death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? There's a good reason that these verses are almost always read at Christian funerals. If you're able to see these things and believe these things, it puts death in its proper perspective. Yes, it's something that in this life until Christ returns, we still have to pass through. But it helps us to see that it's not something to be feared in a final way. And if you've got eyes to see it, if you've been given the grace of the Lord to walk by faith and not just by sight, this gives some comfort. But we need that grace to see by faith because from where we stand and from what our mortal eyes can see, it looks like death still comes out on top very often. And death still wields the sting of separation. And spouses are left wandering around empty homes. And children are left without the counsel of their parents. And friends are left without good conversation and companionship. And it seems like the sting of death still endures even after Christ has come. That's what our mortal eyes can see. And it looks like death still wins that eventual victory over every man and woman and child. That death will be the one to have the last laugh. George Herbert put it this way in a poem called Mortification. How soon doth man decay when clothes are taken from a chest of sweets to swaddle infants whose young breath scarce knows the way. Those clouts are little winding sheets which do consign and send them unto death. The translation there is that as soon as we are born, we all begin to die. Every one of us. We will face it if Christ does not come back and from where we stand with our mortal eyes, it looks as though death still has the victory. That means that you have to have eyes of faith with Paul. You have to believe something about death in order to read these words and see them as anything other than false bravado and embarrassment and sadness. And what you need to know, what you need to believe is that Jesus' victory is greater than death. We need to believe that God's promise in Christ Jesus pertained to something beyond the end of our mortal bodies. You need to believe that in Christ's resurrection, He took the thorns off of the tree of death. And when He returns in His second coming, He's going to pull the plant up by its very roots and cast it away and give life to all of His people who have lived in its shadow. That's the prophetic vantage point that Paul has. He sees what will be. He sees the day coming when God's victory over death is going to be complete and he is able to rejoice in these things. Now this ridicule that that Paul gives, this prophetic trash talk, it's a paraphrase really of two verses from the Old Testament. The first one you're already probably familiar with and it makes a lot of sense why he leans on it. It's Isaiah chapter 25. Uh, He quotes uh, verse 8, but verses 7 and 8 together say this, The Lord will swallow up on this mountain 
the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And we read that and we say, of course, Paul quotes Isaiah here. And God will swallow up death forever in victory. It makes a lot of sense. But the second two lines that he's quoting here come from Hosea 13 that we read earlier today. A dark and dismal passage that ends with pregnant women's bellies being ripped open and babies being dashed against rocks. And it is judgment in a biblical sense. It's all about God's people who have turned from Him and turned to idolatry and turned their back on the God of redemption. And they have sinned, it says in Hosea, more and more and increased their iniquity. And then it comes to Hosea 13, 14 which is what Paul is paraphrasing. And it asks the question, shall I redeem them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. And God is invoking death here to do the dirty work of exacting judgment upon His people. And we say, why would Paul quote these verses? How could this be anything other than shameful? Well, the answer comes when you factor in God's justice and what it's doing here with death. As I mentioned, in Hosea 13, God was calling on death. He was invoking death to come and work justice against His people for their sin. Folks, that is always the way it has been from the beginning. For on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And the wages of sin is death. Death is, in a sense, God's henchman. In Hosea 13, he calls upon death to fulfill the judgment that he has against his sinful people. In Hosea 13, God was calling for death because death had a purpose. But in 1 Corinthians, the reason Paul can taunt death with these very words is that he envisions a time when death will be out of a job. Not only when death will have no more power, but death will have no more purpose. Because the sin which invokes justice will be taken away. And the law which holds the power of sin has been dealt with. And Christ will come back and all of those things will be gone. God's justice will be fully absorbed by the Savior and death will have no reason for being, and it will be cast off. He envisions this day, and chants it, in a sense, back to death, and says, remember, when you were so proud, when you served a purpose, but a day is coming when death will have no purpose. That's the victory of Jesus. And we only see it in the resurrection. We only see it when we turn with Paul with eyes of faith to see something that we haven't yet seen, but we believe in Jesus and we sing with him that hallelujah chorus, that praise the Lord, that thanks be to God because he's taken the victory of death and he's given it to us. As you notice, he asks and he answers the question, where is your victory? We've got it. He gives that victory to us who by faith are united to Jesus. And in all these things, you are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the victory of Jesus. And we only see it as we stand firm in the hope 
of the resurrection. So brothers and sisters, stand firm on the resurrection. Be steadfast, be immovable. Finally, we come back to verse 58. Come back to where we started. By the time that we get back here, we come back to Paul's encouragement to be immovable like the sequoia, to be steadfast like the queen's guard, to put down roots the way Ed stayed in that same machine shop for four decades. Except by God's grace, for a lot of us, I think, four decades won't be nearly long enough. We want to hold on and be steadfast in this gospel and this resurrection just until we can reach some retirement age and we can pass on to something that's better. We want to stand firm until the ground gives way beneath us. If I can change the metaphor, we want to run with endurance the race that is set before us, and we want to run it until the very last step, until the race is done. In 2011, John Stott died at the age of 90. Many of you have probably heard of John Stott. He never married. He never raised a family. But by the time of his death, he had served as a minister in in some capacity at the same church, All Souls, Langham Place in England, for over 50 years. He wrote scores of books. He labored for the salvation of a multitude of people. Three weeks before his death, his close friend, Oz Guinness, paid him a visit. And he was in his own home, and his voice and his breathing were labored. And Oz Guinness had the chance to ask John Stott, how can I pray for you? And he says, this was his response. Pray that I will be faithful to Jesus until my last breath. That's what faithfulness looks like. That's what steadfastness looks like. Faithful to Jesus to your last breath. You know, I had to tell you that example of John Stott because when we talk about these things, it's customary for your pastor to hold out examples of people like John Stott or Adoniram Judson. He died in 1850 in Myanmar, having given his entire life uh, to witness to the gospel, to the Burmese people who translated the entire Bible into the Burmese language. I have to tell you about those things, but the truth is that Your ministry, your labor in the gospel, whatever God calls you to, probably won't look like John Stott's or Adoniram Judson's. Maybe it will. Maybe there are some in this congregation the Lord will call into full-time ministry like that. will call you to go to some place to minister to people you never knew and give your life's labor to translate the scriptures so they can hear the gospel and understand all the echoes of the New Testament from the Old Testament. Maybe somebody here will do that, but... Chances are probably most of you won't, and neither will I. And the truth is, the kind of things, the ministries that they were involved in, those aren't the kinds of things that we're tempted to think are actually worthless. They were Bible translators, they were missionaries, they were church leaders and evangelists and authors and speakers and famous people, and of course their labor is not in vain, but what about the things that you're doing every day for the gospel? What about the little things we're tempted to overlook and the stuff that you do day in and day out? What about laboring to pray with your children when all they want to do is wiggle? What about years and decades praying for children or family members who are not walking with the Lord and the burden that puts on your heart? What about steady, faithful encouragement of your neighbor in the name of Jesus? Sometimes speaking the gospel audibly, sometimes simply backing it up with the way that you live. 
What about standing faithfully against the onslaught of disbelief in our culture? What about facing those same things and those same situations and those same heartaches over and over and over again? Well, the resurrection has something to say about those things as well. It's the last thing that we see. It is only the resurrection gives value to our labor in Christ. If Christ is not raised, if the kingdom that we inherit is not imperishable and eternal, and if we are not made like unto inherit that kingdom and prepared for that kingdom, all that we're doing now is just worthless. Without the resurrection, and we, bat, we die and our bodies rot in the grave and everything passes away. And it's just another hobby. You know, some people like fly fishing. Some people collect stamps. Some people are into evangelism and prayer. That's good. Good for you. If that's all that it is, if there is no resurrection, it's all worthless. But because Christ is raised, because he's coming back for his people, the resurrection makes much more of our labors than that. You know those famous words of G.T. Studd. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. It sounds trite a tiny piece of poetry that we can tuck in our back pocket and take with us, but it's true. Because Christ is raised, your labors, as small as they may be, as insignificant as they may seem in the grand scheme of the Adoniram Judsons and the John Stotts and the whoever else is that you may think of, there's a value to that labor. There's a dignity to that ministry, and it only happens because Christ has been raised. And he's coming back to give you life in him. And it means that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Jesus' victory gives us hope in an imperishable kingdom. And the prayer of our hearts ought to be, O oh Lord, make me steadfast. Keep me always abounding in the work of Christ. Make me immovable in the gospel. O oh Lord, help me to hold fast to the hope of resurrection. Would you please pray with me? Our gracious Lord and King, thank you for the truth and the hope of resurrection. Thank you that even on a cold day in a cold room, you can warm our hearts with these things. You can remind us of the truth of Jesus Christ, the one who came and gave his life, so that we might have life, so that we might have the promise of being raised up to where you are, where he has gone to prepare us a place, and where he will come again to take us to himself. O oh Lord, fix our eyes on that hope. Fix our feet on this foundation. Make us steadfast and immovable. Keep us holding fast to the gospel in which we are being saved. Keep us from believing in vain, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.